You know what I think is an enlightened organization to me? Is an organization who accepts and acknowledge that things change in general. So whether that means the world has changed and now we have a bunch of remote people working with us and we've thought about that and we're, we accept it or whether it means we've embraced the agile ideology and acknowledge that priorities change and, um, you know, things that the business want us to do change even after sometimes after we've done other work, right? Rework is a thing. Um, we account for that in our process. So in my mind, what really makes an enlightened organization more so than any specific thing that they do or don't do is they embrace change as an ideology. Yeah. Change being realistic about change. Absolutely. Is imperative, especially with how quickly technologies are changing and just the things that organizations are having to do to stay competitive um, in today's landscape. The the thing that stands out to me for an enlightened organization is the companies that we work with today that do this best push decisions down to the lowest level reasonable. And it's not three and four meetings. It's not a form to get a form to get a form. It's do you have the expertise to make this change? Should you ask somebody else who does a similar job to you, does this look good? And if you all are in agreement, make the change. You know, it's a great sign in the software development world that an organization or team might be enlightened is when the people who will ultimately do the work are the ones providing the estimates. Yeah, that's huge. And, and, when we first started talking about this concept of enlightened organizations at number eight, we were trying to come up with this short tagline that was a, a shorthand way of saying the best in class companies that we want to work with that will realize the value of what we do the fastest. Um, we listed out all these technical concepts. It was CICD and automated testing and test-driven development and code reviews and, and all of these very specific things that I think for a lot of organizations are table stakes today. Um, as we've done it for a few years, it's more of the, the decision-making capacity, how information is communicated and what a reasonable thought is in a given company. So to your point, the people actually doing the work, are they providing estimates and are those estimates accepted with a um, variable set of circumstances? So if we want to ship by January 1st, this is the, the set of features you're going to get. Those set of features can change depending on how much time we have. Or if you want these 10 features, we can deliver them somewhere between February and March. We don't know the exact date yet, but we'll know as we get closer. Yeah, I think in general, um, just being reality-based in your business decisions goes a long way. Um, and, you know, it's it's great for, for teams that choose to work that way because it's like getting a free competitive advantage. It's a, it's a super straightforward thing to do. You can absolutely do it even if you aren't currently doing it. And once you do it, 
your productivity, your efficiency, your velocity or whatever, you're automatically advantaged over your peers who do not do that. It, it, it is a truly secret competitive advantage because if you're doing it right, you absolutely take it for granted. I would say, um, more often than not, if we have an organization that we're working with that does this really, really well, and a consultant that we've placed there is brand new to number eight and that client, um, it often is a little bit of a learning curve for them to suggest the changes that they may have been um, shouted down for in the past. And it's a, you have to build up a level of confidence and a level of trust that's not there in every organization. But if you're doing it right, you just, that's just how we have always done it. It's not, it's implicit. You don't have to, to codify it. And you not only get more work done and, you know, make your stakeholders more satisfied on average and so on, you also kind of magically become a team that people want to work on because they're not up against unreasonable demands all the time. And um, they, they feel trusted and supported by the people they work with. It's just, you know, there's a whole bunch of benefits that you get out of it that are tangentially related to the actual change, you know? Yeah. It's, I always think it's, you have to develop a level of confidence in that team, but it's, it's, it's more trust than confidence. And I think anybody that's done this for long enough knows what reality needs to be. It's, do you trust everyone else around me to share that same reality at the end of the day? My favorite way of getting more work done with a given group of people is not everybody doing more work. It's figuring out what things are slowing us down and removing them because many of them are going to be unnecessary. And you, if you just all kind of agree to form the habit of not having this be a thing anymore, it won't be a thing anymore. And now that's one less drag on your team's velocity. Yeah. And I, th- I think teams that do this really well, all have a similar personality and how they approach their work. So the best in class teams on average, everybody that comes to the table in a sprint planning has a desire to be their own problem solver. So they're not intimidated by a story that comes their way because they are going to work on it long enough to feel confident that they need somebody else's help. And part of that confidence I think is, the willingness to be honest about things that you're not confident about. So if you, you know, if a story or a task lands in your lap and you don't know how to do it and you know, you don't know how say that. And that's a thing that can only start happening in environments where people are comfortable. Yeah. And then beyond that, it's the, it's a shared level of patience among the team too. And, and so when we're selecting for candidates, we use a tool called the predictive index to give us at least a data point in the large tapestry of a person's history and experience and all of that of how do they approach problem solving is an indicator and what is their patience level and how long are they willing to wait stumped by something? Because oftentimes we've seen that waiting too long to ask for help is just as bad as asking for help too quickly. So it's always this balance. And I think teams on average kind of settle into the same mean across themselves of this is when we need to, to force a conversation to happen. 
Well, I think there's, you know, part of the nuance of team building that really interests me is like, depending on the role and the team and the circumstances, there's a place for everyone, regardless of how they work best. You just have to make intelligent decisions about what that place is and what it is not for any given person in any given set of circumstances. And all of these things feel <laughs> very squishy and human driven and, and all of that. They're not, it's not a story point. It's not code coverage. It's not how the big O notation of an algorithm. It's not any of these highly technical concepts we think about. And in the best companies, the enlightened organizations, as we call them, um, are the ones that understand themselves well enough to be honest about these things and take the time to think about how they're getting stuff done and what needs to change and what needs to improve and, and how we mix that team better to, to get more out of them. It's consistency. It's not, to your point, it's not the teams that get the most work done. It's the, the teams that get the most consistent work done on a regular basis. Well, I think that environment just breeds better managers too because once once managers really embrace that philosophy um, and all the stuff that goes along with it, you, you see more buy-in from your team. Um, you see more trust from your stakeholders over time. And all of those things can have an effect on your team's velocity too. You know, those are obstacles or roadblocks in their own ways. Yeah, I, I think we, we've probably both seen it in action. The, the one person on the team that typically throws a, a fit about the estimates given or an estimate being changed, I, I've always found it humorous prize of the right word, but absurd in a way that that person is usually the one that has to argue about it the most because they understand it the best. And if estimates are being questioned or we're not doing it at all, you lose out on all of that honest um, debate about what you're trying to actually do. Well, I think for some people it's not always natural to accept um pushback or feedback in the way that it was intended. So, you know, if, if I, as a developer provide an estimate for a task and someone else on the team pushes back and doesn't necessarily agree with the estimate and starts telling me why, um, it's my responsibility to accept that in the spirit it was given and think about it and decide whether there's any, you know, truth to it. Um, and so when you, when you have that sort of environment of, you know, we're going to, I'm going to get, smushy again but when you have that environment of trust and support or whatever you can break down that sort of ego factor and actually have honest conversations with your teammates about how things need to go you know which i wish i could say that were a very common or even um default way that teams work but it, it's not and this stuff all rolls up to the top and, and, and sometimes it's it's driven top down and other times it's driven top up eventually over time if a company's gonna be successful there's gonna be some equilibrium met there so what we see having the benefit of cons individual consultants on multiple teams throughout a whole organization we kind of get to see how it rolls up or down and how honest the conversations are from the lowest level teams actually doing the work to the, the leadership level of how it's being communicated out back to other stakeholders. As a manager, I love hearing from a developer, I don't know how to do this, or 
I don't think this is going to work because that isn't what I hear when they speak those words. What I hear is in two weeks, I'm not going to come to you and say, I know I pretended like everything was fine for the last two weeks, but nothing is done. And that's the alternative, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And the, the thing I'll point out to you that I think we've known for a long time is this conversation about the type of companies we like to work with has nothing to do with industry or tech stack or in technical environment or anything like that. And it's the goals that they're trying to achieve. It's their focus on knowing that software is a key part of their business and putting the right level of support and funding behind building great teams to get that done, to, to help their, their customers and, you know, make their change in the world that they want to see too. It's a commitment, you know, waking up every day and going to work or opening your computer and like you're doing that for a paycheck. Sure. But, um, no one, I feel like no one wants at the end of the day to feel like they had an unproductive day and you you don't have to feel that way. And I think we all sort of, know how to avoid it but we often don't for whatever reason do what's necessary to put those pieces together and so i think just forming that habit of and this you know this is very much about what it means to be a number eight like forming the habit of being the person who's willing to have potentially uncomfortable conversations or give people news that they don't necessarily want to hear or whatever with the motivation of getting more done, meeting more goals. So the the start of any company's journey towards being an enlightened organization as we see it, it's just knowing that you need that type of talent on your team and wanting to find a new avenue that we can help you provide um, with tapping into the, the market in Latin America and finding these great consultants that are experienced doing this already. And then there's a, a whole conversation we can have about the technical aspects of making them successful from day one and everything between you being the best in class organization, having everything run smoothly in this this enlightenment type scenario back to that decision that you know you need these people, the, the values there on some spectrum and, and we can help you get there. You know what I, I take from all this? We didn't talk about being a good coder one time it's assumed you're going to be a good if you're a a developer you're going to be good at it it's all it's we always come back to the soft skills being the good coder part is the 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 art it's the thing that drives our people but it's not the thing that makes them the best professional in the world we we all we all know that person (laughs) that is great in spurts but being a professional means getting up every day, whether you want to or not, and doing the things necessary to to be best at what you do. It would be like, to me, it's like if you were to say Frank Lloyd Wright was really good at drawing. Like, yeah, maybe, but is that the story? Like, is that what matters about what he did? I don't think so. There's a lot more than that. You know? He's the chef, right? That's a joke. Yeah, he was famous. That's a joke. <laughs> Um, so Ian, we, we've been talking about the touchy feely aspects of it. And and that's really the most important part 
whether a company realizes it or not. But the human the, aspects, sure, um, the human aspects. I think uh, somebody listening to this may be like, we are just so far away from that reality, given our current environment. Yeah. I don't even know where to start. Well, what, yeah. You know, we we, <laughs> we were joking before we started that this is something we used to get all of the time, and I don't feel like we get it anymore. And we don't know if it's that we're talking to different companies or if it's just something that most teams have adopted and it's just ubiquitous now. But, like, if I'm sitting in my office listening to this and I want to use you guys, I know I have a problem finding the right talent here in the States. Where do I even begin? What What are the things I should be thinking about for my team today that could be – helping this be successful in the future. I, the first question I would ask, um, what will require a new developer on your team to interface with another team member in order to accomplish the task they've been assigned? So as an example, if I'm a developer, I write some code for a new feature. I test it locally. It feels good. What do I need to do to get it on to an actual test environment. Is that an email I have to send to a system administrator or a DevOps person and then wait for them to get to it? Um, because if so, you just lost a day, right? You just lost, a, effectively, you've lost a day unless that person has other stuff that they can start working on in the meantime. Um, and even if they don't, the back and forth, you just lost half a day regardless. Um, so I, I would ask managers to think critically, like, people who are managing a team that's developing software. What are the touch points that might require one of your team members to wait on another person in order to continue moving down the path? And I think you'll be surprised to discover that there are many of those. And maybe some of them don't become pain points for you because the people already on your team have really solid established patterns of communication and they just kind of do that stuff in the background relatively quickly. But the very first time you add someone new, it will break down. Um, and it, it'll predictably break down. Right. And so if you think ahead of time about those things and some of the examples that we've run into, especially in the past, not, not as much anymore are like continuous integration, continuous deployment. That's you can automate a thing that somebody used to have to wait on a human for. Um, automated testing, like I forgot a semicolon at the end of a line of code. Is it going to break in two weeks when we release, or is it going to break right now when I click deploy and the automated tests run? I think, I mean, hopefully right now, right? That'd be better. So, you know, it's the whole entrepreneurial, like fail fast, fail often thing. Mm -hmm. Think about the ways in which you can get your team your systems, your processes to fail fast and fail often. Yeah, and I think the fell fast, fell, fell often mentality, regardless of whether you work with number eight or not, <laughs> I, I think we would both advise to try to adopt some agile practice as soon as you can. Because we we take that for granted because that is that is a huge selection criteria for us when working with our company. But if you're not trying to deliver working code on a regular interval that's not six months at a time it's hopefully six weeks at a time a month at a time um, that's a huge part of it and then really thinking through how work comes into your team i think we've all too often seen um, whether using jira or whatever project management tool that 
card come in with two lines on it to fix this thing that was broken last sprint. And as a new person, I just can't do anything with that. So any work you can do ahead of time to clearly articulate what you're wanting out of it and some type of criteria to say, I know it's done when this happens is a great place to start. I think if you're worried that your team's not even doing that, that's a great place to start. Well, you know, like the word agile has become this business buzzword. And in that process, it has been diluted or entirely lost its meaning and to where people hear it and it, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just a, a word that people use. Um, but it, it's a real thing. And if you embrace it and it, you genuinely, every member of your team makes a commitment to working that way, it will solve a lot of these problems. The reason that it became a buzzword in the first place is because it works and people prove that to themselves, even skeptics. I didn't love Agile when I was a member of an organization who was spending eight months trying painfully to convert to being an Agile organization. I very much liked it in month nine when it started working for me and started making my life easier. And everybody can have the same experience. And if you know, if you don't know how or you've tried and failed or whatever, that's one of the, I think, values that we can provide is that we, we can have a conversation with you about how you work now and maybe, you know, sometimes a fresh set of experienced eyes is all you need to, like, identify problems that you didn't realize were problems. And especially if you have a team that's skeptical and a lot of developers have worked in agile processes, in air quotes, that aren't truly agile and so they don't see the benefit of it. A place to start is to be shipping more often. Release your code more often because a lot of the time we just forget how much work it goes into goes into maintaining a code base. And did I, do I have this dependency now? And, and where's this at? And in what branch? And is it properly tested through these scenarios and, and all of that? There's just so much effort and overhead put into like maintaining that in your collective headspace that if you can just deliver just a little more often, it, it solves a lot of your pain points. Well, it will definitely put your weaknesses on display immediately, right? And so then the second piece of that is to acknowledge those weaknesses. Here's one of the big ones. There was not enough information in the story for a developer to take it and go off and put their headphones on or retreat to their development cave or whatever and just do it without any outside help. Nobody nobody wants to spend their time writing Jira tickets. However... If you do it, your investment will be rewarded, I promise. Yeah. I, my, my fear is when we start to talk about enlightened organizations and, you know, shipping every two weeks and having automated tests and all that, we can overwhelm the, the team that is dutifully working to try to, to do something great. And or just have a circumstance on their hands of they've they've inherited all of this stuff. Um, it hasn't probably been maintained in the best way, and it just hasn't kept up with the times. And they feel like they've just got this insurmountable hole to dig out of. Um, I just don't want them to think that working with number eight or or any um, remote worker, regardless of if it's us or not. I just I, I worry that the collective deception is that. This is the only way we can do it. It's a unique problem. We can't bring anybody else in. This is just the misery we live in. And that's just an instant formula for burnout. 
Well, you know, the saddest part about it is that it's never true. It's never true. I've never seen it be true. It it's so common to feel that way, um, but it's 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 never a reflection of reality. There are simple changes you can make that will um, ameliorate a lot of these pain points. People just don't know what they are, don't know how to do it, can't get buy-in from every person involved, whatever. And you know, a lot of times, what bringing some fresh blood into your team, hiring somebody um, that has no context will do is kind of lubricate new ideas in a way that wouldn't necessarily be as possible with somebody who had been on that team for five years. Um, new person, new ideas are sometimes a little easier to swallow. And I think that's one of the, um, you know, sort of tangible, but unknowable benefits that we've seen clients get when bringing number eights on board too. Yeah, I agree. So Ian, thanks for talking with me about this today. Clearly we can talk about this for hours because I think we, we live and breathe this stuff so much. So if anybody's listening and wants to talk more about it or has any questions, whether, um, you think number eight is the right answer for you today, tomorrow, at some point in the future. Um, Ian and I love talking about this stuff and we're, we're happy to, to chat nerds. with you. We are big nerds and sometimes it's software development nerds, sometimes it's business nerds, whatever it might be, we are. But if you have any questions, um, Ian's email is ian at number eight. I'm oliver at number eight.com. And uh, if you have any questions for us, email us directly or check us out on the website at number eight.com.